Revelation chapter 4. We've been stuck in chapter 4 because it's really the last section of the book of Revelation. Remember John in verse 19 of this, he gives us the outline. The outline is, the Lord told him to write down the things which you see, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And you and I are in is still in the church age, but chapters 4 and chapter 5 begin. The very first words of chapter 4 are meditata after these things. So it's after these things. After what things? After the church age, which we are still a part of, right? We're still a part of the church age, I hope, right? But we know that that age, that time is coming to an end, and it ends when the rapture of the church begins. As soon as the rapture occurs, the church age comes to a close, and chapter 4 and chapter 5 are really... Uh, us meeting the Lord in the air, and we are caught up to heaven, and we will be with him. Our bodies will be transformed. It's a wonderful day. I look forward to it. The Bible calls it the blessed hope. Are you looking forward to it? I am too. I am too. And so the, now the shift changes from that of being on the earth in chapters 2 and 3 to a heavenly realm. So chapters 4 and chapter 5 is where we are going to be with Jesus right prior to his pouring out of wrath upon the world. And we're going to be looking at chapters 6 through 19 that details that in painful detail. Because, folks, do you understand that that time is coming? That time is coming. And so that is what we are looking at, and that's what we have been looking at over the last three or four weeks. And hopefully we'll finish four and get into five today. So let's begin. Uh, John is now caught up into heaven. He is... uh, In the spirit, somehow his body was physically on the Isle of Patmos, but spiritually God was able to translate him, in a sense, to a place yet future to even us. He's able to show him things to come so that he can write these things down. And again, I find great comfort in the fact that God gives us what we need to know in advance. He's a good shepherd. That's what a good shepherd does. Any good shepherd goes before the sheep. We've seen this in Israel. A shepherd will go out into the field. He's going to look at all the stuff in the field, poisonous plants, all that stuff. He's going to pick those things out, pick those things out if he knows they're there so that he can bring the sheep in. And he does that in preparation. And so Jesus does the same thing for us. He prepares us. So he's showing us things to come, things that are going to happen after these things. And you and I understand that we're going to be taken up. And this information that we're reading about now, especially as we get into 6 through 19, people on this earth are going to experience these things. And I don't know about you, but that's a a, a catalyst, really, for me to get out of my comfort zone. Because as I look at those things that are coming upon the earth, and yes, judgment is coming. It's It's a message nobody wants to talk about. They want to talk about, you know, angels on clouds and all these things and just continue to make everything like, well, everything's okay, I'm okay, you're okay. No, we're, we're, we're not okay. This earth is not okay. The church is doing well, hopefully, because we believe in Jesus, although we got some room for growth, right? I think we could all say that. But the world is a complete disaster. It's a mess. And it's a mess because they've rejected the only means of salvation, Jesus Christ. There is only one other way then. God gives the opportunity for every human being to receive him, but he's not going to force you. And there comes a point where he has to judge. A God is a God of love, but on the other side of that love is he has to punish sin. And that's exactly what's happening, folks. And so it behooves us then, doesn't it? 
it behooves us to get that message out. And don't water it down. Don't take back things that you don't like to talk about. Nobody likes to talk about judgment, but it's part of the whole thing. We can't remove the teeth of the gospel. If you just tell people that you need to receive Jesus because he loves you, that's, that's wonderful. But I'll tell you what, you know how I got saved? You know how I received Jesus? Because somebody told me in my face lovingly, I didn't like it, but it was the greatest truth that was ever spoken to my soul. Rob, you are a sinner. And here's what the Bible says about that. But God loves you. Such an interesting paradox, isn't it? That he's a God of love, but yet he's a God who judges as well, because that's a part of love. You can't just be all loving and never, never uh, have consequences for sin. You, as a parent, you know that. You love because as a result of your love, you have to discipline. My mother proves to me that she loves me by disciplining me. And God does too, and he makes no excuses for it. Everyone has an opportunity. And so what decision have you made today for Christ? I'll leave you with that as we go. Because there may be some of you online, there may be some of you here, who maybe have been playing games, thinking, I'm okay. I'm a Christian by name. But is it true of your life? Is it true of your heart? Because God looks on the heart. We can fool each other, but you cannot fool God. So let's put aside all of the religion. Let's put aside all, and I, I say that meaning we can, we can have this external works of things. Well, I've done this. I've done this. I tie this much every week, and I go here, and I go here, and I do that. And I mean, never mind that I'm a drunkard. Never mind that I'm, you know, uh, having an affair in my marriage. Never mind that I'm a liar and a cheat at work. All those things matter. And so God is a God of judgment as well as a great God of love. And you can't, you can't remove the one. Don't remove the one. Fear. <laughs> if, if it takes that, fear is not a bad thing. Fear is what brought me into the kingdom of God because somebody told me. Rob, if you, don't re- if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't turn away from your sinful life, this is what the Bible says, you're going to hell. And I read that. And oh, how the conviction came. It was my time. And you've had that time too. Don't remove the teeth from the gospel. Very rarely seen today in churches. Do you know that? And it's very hard, isn't it? It's not easy to tell somebody that they're a sinner, but you know, you can lovingly tell them the truth, but we must do it. And so these chapters four and five are really important because, and I love it, it's sort of like the bliss before the judgment, because now we're getting a vision of heaven, the heavenly throne room. We've been spending some time in here, and it's so wonderful. Let's look at verse six, because we've already looked at the first five verses last week. Notice it talks about this uh, the sea of glass, like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And we spent some time talking about these four living creatures last week, and we won't re- go over that again. But the first creature was like a lion. The second li- living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like 
like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And we looked at the different ways in which this could be symbolic of, it could be symbolic of the four gospels. And we looked at all of that. It could be symbolic of the four different uh, uh, camps that the Israelites would, um, would camp out in the desert. They each had their own ensign or their own banner for these four different groups, three tribes on each side, north, you know, north, south, east, and west. It could be referring to that, speaking of the totality of the children of Israel. Could be speaking of the Gospels, like I said. Could be speaking of the different creatures in God's creation, how the ox is the greatest of the, uh, you know, the domesticated animals. The lion is the king of the jungle, of the, you know, the the top of the food chain, in a sense. The king of all the animals. The eagle certainly being the king of all the birds. Speaking of the heavenly origin of Jesus and certainly man speaking of God's workmanship, who you and I both are. We are his poema, his workmanship. And there were also other things that we discussed, but again, we won't go into that. But notice in verse, um, uh, let's see, verse 8 is where we're going to pick up this morning. So the four living creatures... These wonderful creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I love what it says in the Greek. Hagios, 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 Kyrios, Theos, Pantocrator. Wonderful. My mother-in-law, who's probably listening, is going, Wow, I didn't know he knew Greek. I really don't. I didn't pronounce it well either, Mom. Sorry about that. But these are the the titles of God. And we'll see as we look at these creatures, their their main thrust is worship. Notice their, their, their doxology here, their worship. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, that worship, when you think of worship, it's ascribing worth to something that's way better than yourself. That's why we pay, you know, you bow down before a magistrate. Or in the old days, before somebody would go before a king, they would bow down before the king. They're acknowledging, they're ascribing worth to the one sitting on the throne. And how much more should we ascribe greatness and, and, and worth to the one who created all things? No matter what king has ever existed on the earth, think of it. The king of kings. Jesus Christ, he alone deserves our worship, doesn't he? And these four living creatures, they rest, they don't rest day or night. And that's all they do. And I don't think it's like, oh, for the four, four, four millionth time, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who else in his, oh, oh, excuse me. Uh, you know, they're, they're not falling asleep. They are excited. They are amazed. And you know what? I want that kind of, reverence and awe of God. So often in our culture, in our life, we can get kind of bogged down in the mundane things of the world, our our routines, and yet God hasn't changed. He is who he is. And one day, you and I are going to see him face to face, and everything is going to change. Everything will change, and it won't be, there won't be any tiredness. There'll be a realization of really who he is and who we are and the great gulf that was between and Jesus, the one who was that intercessor for us. We are going to be totally undone, and it'll never cease. We'll have a capacity that will never diminish 
Do you understand? Because my feelings, unfortunately, work against me in this life. I can have great moments of when I'm worshiping the Lord, you know, singing, and I'm just like, especially in my car, I love singing in my car. If you ever pull up next to me when I'm out driving around in my car in the, around town, and you see my face, and I'm, and I'm, I'm singing to the top of my lungs, and, and you can hear the stereo blasting through the metal of the car. I am loving. Those are some of my favorite times. I'm alone. Nobody can hear me. But these creatures, they cease not day and night. And you know, we ought to be excited. We ought to be excited about him. I hope that all of you, again, will be challenged by that. You know, let yourselves uh, go, in a sense. We know that there's, a, there's an order to our services, you know, but I think we can, uh, we can, we can take a little bit of loosening up a little bit. Because I think uh, when I look at David and I look at the, the Israelites as they worship, that there was, it was really beautiful. I remember back in, uh, what was it, 2011, one of the trips in Israel, we were right there by the right there by the Western Wall complex. And there was a bar mitzvah happening close by. And I'll never forget what a joyous occasion it was. I mean, they had this young man who's 13. You know, he's a, he's a man of the law now, right? And so they got, him up on the, they, they got him up on their shoulders, and they're dancing around, and it's just so jubilant. And we, we just happened to be walking in the midst of them down this aisle, down this alleyway, and they were all pouring out into the alley, and, it, and it, it just you get caught up in it. And I thought to myself, wow, this is so exciting. I started to dance myself. You know, being around them and, and just the, the joy. And I thought to myself, wow, one day we're going to do that. One day we're going to do it and we'll be uninhibited. Uninhibited. I would encourage you, if there's any inhibition in you, ask the Lord, Lord, remove it. Believe me, if we start getting really weird, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, all right? But I don't think we even have to worry about that. So be encouraged and, and worship the Lord. Love him. And um, this doxology that we see here, when they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, this is one of 14 times in the book of Revelation where we see these worship, spontaneous worship happening. We see it here in chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to see it again with the 24 elders in uh, verse 11 of this chapter and the 24 elders and the four living creatures uh, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10. We're going to see it again in chapter 7, verse 12, the 24 elders, the angels, and the four living creatures. And then in uh, chapter 11, verses 16 through 18, the 24 elders. And then in chapter 19, verse 4, we're going to see it again, the 24 elders and the four living creatures ascribing worship, greatness to the King of kings, the Lord of lords who made all things. And there are many more that are in there. Those are just a handful that I'd mentioned. But I want to read something to you. These four living creatures... Even in the Old Testament, we know that in the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus became incarnate in the Virgin Mary. What does it say in Isaiah chapter 6? Let me read it to you for the sake of time. You might want to write the reference down. But Isaiah speaking, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, who was the king of Judah at the time, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So Isaiah sees this vision. High and lifted up, I see him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. 
seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, again, another doxology, another spontaneous act of praise. What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. I don't know about you, but I want to get captivated. I want to get caught up into that, don't you? Just like that bar mitzvah in Jerusalem when they were just all dancing around. It became, I felt like, man, I got to dance. I got to get motivated. It just, it, it inspires you. Let God inspire you. He's worthy of inspiration. He gives the inspiration. He gives it. So we see in Isaiah's prophecy, in his uh, book, the prophet. We see these four living creatures as well. And we see it also in Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like. We'll read just the first 14 verses of this really quick. It talks about these four living creatures too. And you'll notice that there, there's a little bit difference between, a little bit of difference between the prophets and how they describe these creatures. Again, they're trying to describe something in the language that is available to them. And they're trying to describe something that was really beyond description. So we got to cut them a little slack. There's a lot of similarities. There's a few differences. But that may just be the, what they saw. I mean, there, there's, there's things about this that we can't be totally cut and dried and dogmatic about. So look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. It says, it came to pass. Now remember, Ezekiel now is in captivity in Babylon. He was probably in the second wave, the second deportation of Jews that went into captivity before Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 586. But it started in 606, if you remember. And Daniel and his fellows got carried away to Babylon. And the second wave, when they came back and took even more captive, Ezekiel was among that number. So now he's in Babylon, and he's writing this, he's writing this prophecy, not only to those who are with him, the fellow Jews that have been taken captive in Babylon, but he's also writing about events that are going to occur in Jerusalem yet. And he describes this wonderful scene. He says, It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Just as we saw Isaiah, the Lord did the same thing with him. And on the fifth day of the month, which is the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar. So we know who the vision is. We know where it's taking place. And the hand of the Lord was upon him. And it says in verse 4, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and the brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And here we have them again. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. These creatures did not turn when they went, but they each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. And so he, he describes these creatures that we see here now in Revelation, and the picture is 
is consistent, although slightly varied. But again, try to understand that they're trying to use symbols and pictures to describe something that is really indescribable. And so we see the reality of this heavenly throne room. The one who sits on the throne, God the Father, who alone is spirit. You cannot see God the Father. Jesus is the only one physically of the Godhead that you're able to see. He was the only one who manifested himself in a physical form. Through the Virgin Mary, through the incarnation, we were able to reach out. The apostles, the disciples, they were able to touch him and to handle him. They were able to see him and talk with him. Until he was crucified and resurrected, until he ascended, he was very physical. And do you know right now there is a physical man in heaven in his glorified body from his resurrection, his resurrection body, the same body, folks, that you and I are going to receive. Are you looking forward to that? I'm looking forward to that new body. So in verse 9, back in our text this morning, in Revelation 4, notice, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, notice, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Do you get the point that he's he's not going to die? He's going to live forever and ever, right? And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy. Here's another doxology right here, another spontaneous burst of praise. You are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. The glory it speaks, you know, when these living creatures give glory, it's the word doxa. It's where we get doxology. It just means worship. It means an estimate, our opinion. That's what it means. Glory and honor, it speaks of value. It speaks of esteem of someone who is precious. And that's who Jesus is. He is precious. And then it goes on and talks about whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, they also give thanks to him. And this is where we get our our Greek word eucharista. Eucharist. At the heart of that, what that word means is giving of thanks. So what do we do when we take communion? We're taking part of the Eucharist. We're giving thanks for what Jesus has done. That's why we have the matzah and, and, the, and the juice. And we know what they represent, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. We give thanks for what he's done. Isn't that something to be thankful for? I'm so glad for that. Because if it weren't for that, I would be hopelessly lost. And so would all of you. So we give thanks to him. And so they do. They give thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. They literally prostrate themselves down when they worship him. And notice that he lives forever and ever. I love Isaiah. There's this one verse that just has always captivated me. And I would encourage you to write this down and memorize it because it's one of those verses that will really get your head off the earth. I don't know about you, but I really want to be thinking about something other than what's going on on this planet. Something holy, something that's reserved for us. It's something that will never perish. It'll never pass away. Reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that what the Bible says? And I, I, I got to be honest, I want it more than anything else. I'm not looking forward to physical death, honestly. I'm not looking forward to the, the means by which I go. You know, have you thought about that? We all have. Nobody likes pain. They don't want to go through that. I mean, I'd much rather go, you know, after a very good meal. I've said this before. 
You know, and you just go to bed and you've had your cheesecake and your steak and potatoes. You've had your coffee and you're relaxing with the fan on and then you just kind of go to sleep and then you just shut down. In the presence, that's kind of the way I hope I go. I hope it's not messy and drawn out and painful. But (laughs) the Lord knows, doesn't he? But notice what it says in Isaiah. Write this down and memorize this verse because it is, if you think about it, it'll really encourage you. It says, for thus says the high and lofty one. So God here is speaking in the first person. For thus says the high and lofty one. Man, does that just blow you away? Just the, I mean, the fact that he speaks of this of himself. He's not, he doesn't have an ego trip. Do you understand that? It's not like you and I when we boast because we're nothing. But he boasts and he's accurate. He's the only one who can say, I am the high and lofty one. And he's not even bragging. It's not even self-centered. It's not even egotistical. Do, do you see it? Can you, can you feel it? Do you get me? I love that. Love that. Relish in that. He says, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits what? Eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Wow. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He has always existed. He will never, ever cease to exist. He's always been. Before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was. He was there for eons. In fact, he was always there. Does that make your mind just kind of pop like a kernel of popcorn? It does me when you think about it. But let it begin. Let it happen because, folks, that's where our worship really begins. And then we join with these heavenly creatures. We join with these elders and these angels and these four living creatures. And one day we're going to stand before him and we're going to see this scene and we are going to worship him and our jaws are going to hit the ground. We're going to have a whole new body that's going to, we're not going to be tired and we're going to see it. We're going to feel the reality of who he is and there's going to be no restraint whatsoever. There's going to be tears of joy. Can you imagine? But there's no one like him, right? What does it say in Isaiah 44? It says, thus says the Lord. Here again, God speaking the first person. The king of Israel, he says, and his redeemer. Who is his redeemer? Who is it? It's Jesus, right? Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock I know not one that's God speaking in the first person he doesn't know of anybody else he alone is the uncreated one let your heart be taken away with that we're going to see him folks face to face 
In Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 5, it says, I am the Lord, God says, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And here he's speaking to Cyrus in the context, that they may know from the rising of the sun and to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In Isaiah 45, verse 18, what does it say? For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and he made it, he is who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 22. What does he say? Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Wow. Isn't that just praiseworthy? Doesn't that make you just want to get out the electric guitar? Get a bunch of screaming amps behind me. Love it. And ascribe greatness to him. See, this is the reality. And right now we have this veil, you know, but soon we'll see him face to face. So he goes on in verse 11, he says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Again, the word worthy is is axios. It means deserving. You are due this, Lord. You are worthy to receive glory. And again, that's doxa. That means to be praised. You deserve honor. It means a value and esteem of someone who's precious. And you deserve power. This is the word dynamis, where we get our word dynamite. You, you are all powerful. In fact, it's inherent power. All power, right? What, is it, what does it say in Romans 13? The powers that be are ordered by God. That means that everything, all power belongs to him, and he lends it out to whom he wills. And boy, there's going to be some accounting for these people, individuals who have received power. They will stand before God and give an account for what he has given them. And some are going to do well, but many are going to be not doing so well. And yet God allows it. That's the mystery. But he has inherent power. It all comes from him. There's no one else who has power outside of him. It all comes from him. Isn't that amazing to think? That if he, if he chose to, he could stop evil right now in its tracks. He already did it on the cross. Now he's allowing it to, to, to meet itself out and for man to have his day. But there's coming a time, we know that that day is coming. There is going to be an accounting. There is going to be a judgment. And this is what we warn people of. In love, right? We don't do it by yelling at them. We don't get it by standing on the corners and yelling at them and calling them names. And there are churches who do that, and they're wrong. You don't yell at people. You tell them the truth in love. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't it wonderful when you have a really, a a good friend can tell you the hard stuff. A real friend can give you the business privately, one-on-one, and it breaks your heart. And you might even be mad, but you got a friend. A friend won't lie to you. A friend wants the, the better for you. He wants the best for you. And God is even more so than a friend. He's close, he sticks closer than a brother, the Bible says, right? He's more than a friend to us. He knows us so intimately, He's like, I know what's best for you. Will you just let go? Will you let go? You've been trying to figure your whole life out from the very beginning, and you've made a mess of things, but I love you, and I'm, I'm here to redeem you. Will you accept him? You must accept him. You must. It's not even an option. 
Hopefully everyone in this room and everyone online, hopefully every one of them, all, all, of all of us, has received him. And if you haven't, you must. Because he loves, because he's, he loves you. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But not everyone's willing to yield their own will to God, to Jesus Christ. And what did, he, what did he say in Isaiah? I rattled off a number of scriptures. There's none beside him. He's the only one that you're going to face. See, God is not like a man. You know, um, he's not like a man, and yet man often will try to bring God down to his level. See, God is, he is worthy, he is holy, and he, he, he is separate from sinners. He's separate from his creation. There's no doubt who is being spoken of here. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. We know this is the Logos, Jesus Christ. In the beginning, you could substitute Jesus' name in there, and let me just read it to you. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus... Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning, God was there, and very clearly, the scriptures show that he existed before creation, before the heavens and the earth, before all things were created. He was already there. What does it say in Ephesians 3, verse 8? Paul says to to them, to the Ephesians, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. In other words, meaning the worlds, meaning the planets and everything else. But you know, we are a privileged planet. I don't know if you know that. I'm not worried about life on other planets. I don't care what the scientists think. I don't care what Area 51 is all about. Whatever it is, it's a a deception. Do you you get that? Everybody repeat after me. It is a deception. Ready? It is a deception. One more time. It is a deception. If there are any beings, they are demonic beings. But they are not living on some planet that's more advanced than ours. The Bible, you know, there's a really wonderful DVD I'd have you look at. It's called The Privileged Planet. And maybe one night we'll show it on a Sunday night or something like that. But it just shows how God, just as he said here, that he, he, he made the world inhabited. Um, and it was a very special, unique place in the solar system. There's only one like it. They can search all they want. They can find a drop of water on Mars and go, ah, there's life here. Are you kidding me? There's not life like there's life here. And he died for this planet. 
There's no place like this anywhere else. You can bet on it, because if there was, God would have told you about it. And if there is, then they have to have free will too, and then he had to die for them as well. And he only died once, the Bible says. So I don't think he's making a tour, a redemption tour, going around to the different earths, dying again. Man, I've done this so many times. Again? Man, the stakes are longer on this one than than back on earth. No, he died once, and we are it, folks. And if that sounds egotistical, so be it. I don't care. I don't care what the scientists think. Smarter than I am, that's fine. Don't care. Do you? Are you going to allow somebody with a PhD to bamboozle you by, by their knowledge that something that goes in direct contradiction to the word of God? No, they need to submit to this. They need to obey this. There's more truth to this than them standing before you. They need to submit to God, and hopefully they will. But notice that God created all things. Notice that he created. He created, and he, he, is not, he did not use evolution in this process. There's a big difference between evolution and creation. Some, some Christians like to try what they, uh, they believe in a theistic evolution, which means that they believe that God started or directed the evolutionary process. They like to think, well, and they try to marry uh, man's wisdom with what God says. God says he created everything in, 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 in six days, six successive days, 24-hour periods. That's hard for some people to, to take. It doesn't bother me. So the really smart people tend to think, well, why, don't, why can't we just marry these two ideas together and say, well, God created evolution, and then he, he, he created the process of evolution. That feels good to me. That feels good to me. It's nonsense. Because if God needed evolution to create, then he's not worth worshiping. He either said what he meant and did what he said he did, or he didn't. Is he able to speak something out of nothing? I think he is. So those who think otherwise, they can think what they want. They are wrong. And I'm not afraid to tell somebody who's very smart, smarter than I am. I'm not that smart. I'm willing to tell them, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. I love you, but I'm telling you, you are wrong. And I don't care if they have PhDs at Harvard or Oxford or Yale or Stanford University. Anyone who believes or feels that God didn't create something from nothing is wrong. They're wrong. Don't be afraid to say it. In our culture, oh, that'll hurt my esteem. Hey, forget about it. (laughs) You worship Jesus Christ. He will never turn you away. He'll be right there. If he used evolution as a process to bring about all living things, then he proves that he is not who he says he is. And then what are we doing here then? He is able to speak and something come into existence. If you read the first chapter of Genesis, that's exactly what happens. He spoke and there was. He created something out of nothing. He created something, many things, out of nothing. When there wasn't something there, he created it. What does it say in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. 
Psalm 90, verse 2, a psalm of Moses. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Psalm 148, it says, praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. In Isaiah 45, verse 18, what does it say? For thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, who did not create it in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. Is it any mystery that they can't find any other inhabited planets with all of our fancy gizmos? Because there are none. We live on a privileged planet. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, speaking of the coming heavens, new heavens and a new earth that are coming, yet future. What does God say in the first person? He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, is one of my favorite verses. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible, which substantiates the idea that he created something from nothing. I don't have a problem with that. So when these, when these four living creatures... They're saying, you are worthy of honor and praise and glory and power because you created, and by your will, they were done. It was God's will, and it was good. It was very good. What does it say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31? After God had created all things, what does it say? In fact, each successive thing, day one, God looked at it, and he says, it is good. Day two, he created, it was good. Day three, what he created, it was good. And finally, he creates man, and then afterwards... He creates, he creates the environment for man and then places man in it. That makes sense, doesn't it? How can you create man and then just have him hang out in space waiting for a planet to inhabit? No, he created all things, all the food source, the water, everything was there. And then he goes, now I'm going to do something really awesome. This is the capstone of my creation, man, who I want to have fellowship with. Right? But then God saw everything that he had made, Genesis 131, and indeed, it says, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Because he created it, it was his will. What does it say in Psalm 115, verse 3? But God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. It is his will. Psalm 135, verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in the deep places. Tell me who made this comment. I'm going to read it to you. Tell me if you know. And this is just a fun thing. But tell me if you know who said this. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who said it? Nebuchadnezzar. That's it. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king who actually came against Jerusalem, sacked it for, for what was it, for, for 20 years, he brought them into captivity and besieged Jerusalem until finally in 586, he says, enough's enough. 
He goes and he levels the whole thing. It wasn't until afterwards, by the influence certainly of Daniel, who was one of those captives, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a, there's a long, long history here, but at the end, Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize that he is not the king of kings. God is the king of kings. He came to his senses, finally. This pagan king, whom the Bible has a lot of ink about, guess where he is, I believe. I believe he's in glory. One day you're going to see the nebulous one. You're going to see Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that. Verse 5, or chapter 5, excuse me. We'll just look at the first seven verses. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. Again, we're in the heavenly scene now. And so we're seeing the throne room. We're seeing God the Father. You know, notice his visage is not really described. They describe in colors and and lightnings and thunders. The only one who they can physically see of the Godhead is Jesus. We'll see him as the lamb and who had been slain. But notice, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals and the right hand again speaks of power and authority and normally a scroll would only be written on one side and you understand why that would be because if you're writing on ink on vellum or parchment you don't want it to be bleeding through on the other side and flipping it over and writing but there was so much that was going to happen on the earth the judgments that were about ready to be released on the earth and even perhaps the justification for such do you understand that God just doesn't judge just because he's angry? Just because he feels like doing it? No, there's a justification for everything. There's consequences for sin. And there's coming a time when the church after the church is removed that all hell is going to break loose on this earth. And remember, that time of great tribulation, which we're going to be looking at in the next chapter, in chapter 6, beginning, these scrolls, the seven-sealed scroll, as Jesus takes the scroll, the 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 the... the the seal off of each scroll is going to unleash a judgment upon the earth. And do you understand how quickly those things are going to happen on the earth? Think about what we just experienced with COVID-19. That's nothing. It's nothing. I don't know how many times you'd have to amp that up, but it's going to happen There's going to be things, pestilences, there's going to be things happening, and there's going to be a small little reprieve, and then there's going to be another wave, and then another wave, and then another wave. What did Jesus say about this? He says, Jesus speaking to his disciples on the Mount uh, Mount of Olives, what did he say to them? For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen since the beginning of this time, or since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, nor ever shall be. And unless those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus is saying this tribulation period is going to be so awful that unless he came back to interrupt it, and we read about that in, Je- in Revelation 19, verse 11, if he did not come back, there'd be nobody left. That's what's coming Aren't you glad to be in Christ? You know, it's a funny thing. I don't... Some people need that. For me, I needed, to be, I needed to be frightened. That's just me. Some people come to the Lord very easily. You know, you can tell them that they're, you know, they've sinned against God and that God forgives them if they believe in Christ. And, 
And that's all it takes. But for me, I needed to be dangled over hell. (laughs) I needed somebody to say, you know, to dangle me over the fire of hell and say, this is what you deserve, Rob. This is ultimately where you're going if you don't turn from your trajectory. And at that point, I'm like, I'll change. Fear. But then after the fear came a great love. It's okay. In Matthew 3, verse 7, Jesus told the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even Jesus spoke of wrath to come, of judgment. And as he's beginning to unloose these seals on this seven-sealed scroll, each one is going to unleash a wrath of God upon the earth. It's going to be directed from God to those on the earth after the church is removed. Do you understand? It's not necessarily persecution, although there will be persecution for those, that remnant of Israel, and certainly those who give their heart to Christ during the Great Tribulation period. It's going to be very difficult. But it's a judgment of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Much more than being justified by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, it says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you get the point that we are going to be delivered from the wrath to come? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to the scrolls. You know, he, uh, the, the scroll is written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And this was even, and, and these things that are coming upon the earth were even prophesied before the flood. What does it tell us in Jude? In Jude's letter, Jesus's Half-brother Jude wrote a letter. It's right before the book of Revelation. And what did he say? He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, speaking of ungodly men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. To do what? To execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them for all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all... And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this was written before the flood judgment. Enoch prophesied of the second coming. He prophesied of the tribulation period culminating with the second coming of Christ to the earth with us, with the saints. That sounds like a pretty good deal. I'm glad I'm not going through it. I'm glad I'm coming back with him. And he's doing all the work. Because we don't need to. He's strong enough. He's able. Just with the breath of his mouth, as when he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be fountains of waters. Let there be plants and animals. Let the earth bring forth all beasts after its kind. Let the sea bring forth everything after its own kind. Just as he said that with the breath of his mouth, he can say, you are no longer You are no longer. He can speak with the breath of his mouth and enemies are destroyed. When he comes back in his second coming, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. But God is just. 
What does it say in Revelation 16? Remember this, God is just. We don't like it sometimes. We don't like talking about this. It's important, though. Because what's about to happen, Jesus has it in his hands. He has the plans. And he's about ready to unleash it. But when he does, he's going to be justified. What does it say in Revelation 6, verse 4 through 7? It says, then the angel, and this is in the, it, well into the tribulation period, during the last seven uh, plagues upon the earth, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, notice what this angel says. He says, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. The angels are saying, holy and just are you for pouring out your wrath upon this world. Do you understand that? Nobody likes to talk about that. But even the angels say, They are worthy to receive these things. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. That means everything he said, everything he's going to do is righteous. It's just. And I'm so glad I'm not the judge. I'm so glad that Jesus is the judge. But how important it is for them to for us to have this vision of heaven right now, because right there we see before the throne this lamb as it had been slain holding this. And let's go on really quick here. He says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And that's a wonderful question, and the question is very significant. Who has the right credentials to open these seals? Only God has the credentials. Only he has the right out of creation and redemption. He has the power to fulfill this program because he knows all things. He knows all things. And no one in heaven, verse 3, or on earth, notice, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So we see these three designations. Do you understand this? There was no one in heaven, there's no one on the earth, and there's no one under the earth, which really speaks of the dead who have been buried and those who are the wicked dead that are in hell. That's what it speaks of. No one in heaven, no one on earth, and no one in under the earth was able. And notice he said, verse 4, and I wept much. This word, it's kleio, and basically what it means is he wept aloud. It was a convulsive weeping. It wasn't just like a tear coming out of his eye. No, there was no one worthy in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth, and he wept much. He wept. It was a serious weeping. He wept aloud like when you love somebody greatly and they die unexpectedly and you're just overcome. That's what John was. But notice, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. Jesus, because he is the Redeemer. Because he is God Almighty, he has the right and he has the power. And we know that the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah is the ensign of, or the banner of Judah was a lion. And who who came through the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Remember, David came through the lion, came through the tribe of Judah, and so did Jesus. And you can look at Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob is prophesying over his sons and he prophesies over Judah. And he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh was none other than Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 11, he's also, he came from Jesse. And 700 years before Jesse was even born, actually, I'm sorry, it would be, um, actually, uh, let me just say this. Isaiah said, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Because Jesse was obviously already born and had passed away. There shall come forth a rod and a, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Meaning out of the stump, out of the progeny of, 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 of Jesse would come forth this one who would rule all things. And it, again, it speaks of Jesus being uh, from Jesse through David. You know the lineage when you look at Matthew and you look at Luke, you can see that Jesus was a descendant from the tribe of Judah, of which David also was. In the very last chapter of Revelation, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, I've sent my angel to, to testify to you these things in the churches. And notice what he says. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Came from David. He's a lion. You know, Jesus is this, we see Jesus as being this wonderful picture type of the Passover lamb. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he was this meek lamb who took the sin of the world upon his shoulders and died very humbly. But when he comes back, when Jesus comes back, a whole different story, he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, exacting vengeance. Nobody likes to think about God and vengeance. But he is. He's all those things. Because he's a good God. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus goes up. Oh, I, I missed something here. Let me, uh, in verse 6 here. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent into all sent out into all the earth and and jesus you know for eternity he's going to bear the marks of his suffering for you and i he always will we will always look at him and those scars will never go away They'll never go away. And then he came and he took the scroll out of the hand, the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He goes up to his father and he reaches out his hand and the father gladly gives him the scroll. He says, son, you are worthy. You are worthy, almighty God. Almighty God is speaking to almighty God. Son, you are worthy to unloose the seals. You're the only one. And you will be just and righteous when you do. Jesus' victory over sin and death gives him the right. And it's, it's fitting that Jesus is opening this scroll and judgment is being meted out by him because it is he who the world has rejected. It is he who has been removed from the classrooms and the universities, except for those faithful teachers and professors who are lights and Christians and able to share when they can. Praise the Lord for them. But overall, the, Jesus has been removed no longer welcome, and it is Jesus whom the American Civil Liberties Union would love to crucify if he was still here on this earth. They would crucify him again. It is Jesus whom the LGBTQ would run out of town, and they'd burn his house down if he were present. And it is Jesus whom they will face, face to face, in judgment. 
and all who reject him unless they repent. Right? Repentance is a big deal. God is good. God is good. Let me finish with a, a verse. It's in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel, writing this prophecy, a captive in Babylon, he prophesies of what's coming. And I love what he said. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And they brought him near before him, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is sovereign and he's omnipotent. Isn't that a blessing? And so the scene in heaven, as we, when we get together next week, we'll look at the remaining chapter of chapter 5 before it all starts to come down. And again, we're getting a preview, aren't we? The people during that time will be able to, I can imagine the horror of that. I mean, think of it. The rapture occurs and a person is left, or there's going to be a lot of people left. And somebody finds a Bible, perhaps from a daughter who tried to get their mother to receive Christ, and the mother's going to open up their daughter's Bible in tears, and there's going to be a little footnote beginning in chapter 6. These are the next things that are coming. And for the mother to watch, and she can literally watch. Families can watch and see what's coming. They'll, they'll know what's coming and the order it's coming. And yet they'll have an opportunity. It's going to be very, very, very difficult. The Bible says there's going to be such a great deception. So how, how important it is for us now in this time of peace, relative peace, to receive Christ. If you haven't received Christ today, please make that decision. Because the Lord wants you to be with him. He knows what your yearnings are really all about. He knows that you really long to be with him. Everybody wants to go to heaven, don't they? But sometimes we don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to give up our right to dominate ourselves and do what we want and what we think is best. Tell me, I, I got to be honest, the greatest joy in my life has been the more I give up of myself, the more I give up of my own will, the greater joy I have and the greater he can do things through my life and your life. It's, it's, it's almost unfair that I get to be blessed and, you know, if we just let go. Take our hands off the steering wheel. Lord, you drive. <laughs> Sounds like a Toby Mac song. I don't want to be a backseat driver. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you mean to us, God. We thank you, God, that you are in the heavens. And Lord, we thank you that you've showed us these things to come. Lord, not to scare us, not to, 
not to break our hearts. Uh, if nothing else, Lord, you've, you've shown us these things to uh, enable us, to provoke us even, to, in love, reach out to family and friends and to those who don't know you, God. That is, if, if that's all this is really uh, the catalyst for in our own life, because we know we're not going to go through these things coming, then so be it, Lord. May it be the thing that just churns in our heart and, 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 doesn't, and, and doesn't cause us to be quiet about this. Lord, help us. Help us to be vocal about our faith. Help us to be vocal about Jesus. So, Father, we commit ourselves into your hand. And we look forward to, even though these, these next chapters are going to be difficult, Lord, we, may they inspire us to share with others, to get us out of our comfort zones. And again, Lord, for anyone that doesn't know you, Lord, may you touch their heart right now. And may after we close here and I say amen, may they find a quiet spot somewhere in their house, somewhere in their car, somewhere out in a field and just get it right. Get it right with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you.